Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N. Today, I want to talk about criminal responsibility and insanity. Now, I know historically the term insanity has been used and is still used in the legal context. I want to acknowledge that this is an ableist word, and I am using it purely in the context of legal terminology. Today, there's a push in some countries for the insanity defense to be called mental disorder defense or defense of mental illness. The United States, not surprisingly, is a bit behind this curve, but as we learn more about the harmful effects of stigmatizing language, we will hopefully shift that terminology to be less offensive and disempowering. We talked about competence to stand trial last week, but the topic of criminal responsibility is a little bit different. Competence is someone's ability to understand the legal process, whereas criminal responsibility refers to someone's state of mind at the time of the crime. They don't always match up, so you could be psychotic at the time of a crime, but at trial you could be found competent if you are not currently experiencing psychosis or are medicated for a disorder. Historically speaking, the term insane comes from the legal context, though it is often incorrectly equated with mental illness and dangerousness. The technical definition of insane is, quote, a condition which renders an affected person unfit to enjoy liberty of action because of the unreliability of their behavior, which can include concomitant danger to themselves or others. Insanity interferes with the free and rational decision-making process that we go through when committing a crime, making it impossible to hold us accountable for our actions. This interference makes it impossible for a person to form criminal intent or mens rea necessary to be considered responsible for their actions. We talked about the history of the insanity defense a bit in the first episode. From the use of it in Henry de Bracton's court in the 13th century, insanity became known as anyone who wasn't aware of what they were doing. In other words, they couldn't understand what they were doing was wrong if they didn't understand what they were doing in the first place. Moving into the 14th and 15th centuries in England, a person had to understand the difference between good and evil to be found guilty of a crime. We'll come back to the concept of good and evil in a future episode. This turn in definition made insanity seem like more of a moral failing than a cognitive one, though that change occurred in the 18th century when memory and understanding were taken into account. By the 19th century, there was another large shift in our operationalization of insanity to mean diseased mind, where a person did not understand the consequences of their actions. The pinnacle case in terms of how we understand the insanity defense is that of Daniel McNaughton. Daniel killed a British prime minister's secretary in the mid-19th century. He also attempted to assassinate the prime minister, but failed. Daniel believed the Prime Minister was personally responsible for his misfortune in life. There were nine individuals who testified that Daniel was insane at his trial. The jury acquitted him, finding him not guilty by reason of insanity. The Queen, Victoria at the time, wasn't the biggest fan of this ruling. She wanted there to be a review of the verdict, and she wanted to create new laws that prevented madmen, as she called them, from killing without consequence. 
The review reversed the jury verdict and passed a new law defining responsibility for insanity cases in England. It stated that a person can't be held responsible for their actions that they did not know were wrong at the time they were committed. This became known as the McNaughton test and was taken up by the American courts as well. This test required undeniable proof that the person was suffering from, quote, a disease of the mind that resulted in them not knowing their actions were wrong. This was the standard throughout the first half of the 20th century, though there was still a significant amount of confusion that existed between mental illness and insanity in the criminal justice system. One of the main criticisms of the McNaughton test is that it only identified cognition as a source of insanity, when there are other factors involved as well. These criticisms led to revisions of the McNaughton test and laws to include irresponsible impulse in the definition of insanity. This revision would support an insanity defense plea when a mental disability was present to the extent that it made it impossible for that person to resist their actions even if they knew their actions were wrong. This became known as the Durham test, but it didn't receive a lot of support at the state or federal level in the United States. Now that we have a better understanding of the history of insanity in the legal system, I want to turn your attention to an important distinction not guilty by reason of insanity, and guilty but mentally ill. Many people believe criminals use the insanity defense often, and those found not guilty by reason of insanity are a continual threat to society when set free by juries. But this is a vast oversimplification and incorrect assumption. The insanity defense is used pretty sparingly. In less than 1% of cases, and it's only successful less than 25% of the time. Even when the insanity defense is successful, the verdict doesn't guarantee immediate release back into society. That person's often held in a mental hospital for an indeterminate length of time. Many offenders spend most, if not all, of their lives in these facilities. The release criteria are also very restrictive, and many spend as much or more time in the psychiatric hospital than they would have in prison if they hadn't been found not guilty by reason of insanity. Regardless of these facts, many states wanted to reform the insanity defense and created a separate verdict of guilty but mentally ill. The main difference between not guilty by reason of insanity and guilty but mentally ill was the guilty verdict. For guilty but mentally ill, the defendant is considered responsible for the crime. For states that recognize the guilty but mentally ill verdict, the jury has the decision to find them guilty but mentally ill or not guilty by reason of insanity if they plead insanity. So they'll be sentenced for the crime, but spend the sentence in a hospital until sanity is restored. So if and when sanity is restored, they'll be then transferred to a prison to serve out the remainder of their sentence. One of the main criticisms of guilty but mentally ill is that it's confusing to jurors as a verdict. It allows jurors to sidestep the entire conversation surrounding mental illness and the insanity defense. It's sort of a cop-out. Unfortunately, this verdict doesn't guarantee the defendant will receive the treatment that they need in prison. A more general concern about the insanity defense is that it relies very heavily on expert witnesses. We talked about the problems surrounding expert witness testimony in another episode, and in this case, some testimony regarding the insanity defense isn't based on empirically valid opinions, yet they are highly influential in the court proceedings. 
There were federal reforms in the 1980s that addressed these issues, requiring defendants to provide adequate evidence that they were not aware at the time of the crime their actions were wrong due to the severe mental disease or defect. The reform limited the scope of expert testimony as well to keep testimony more objective. In other words, they couldn't provide their opinion about whether the individual met the standards of insanity as spelled out by the law. No substantial reforms have been made at a federal level in the United States since 1984. To date, all states accept an insanity plea except for Idaho, Montana, Utah, and Kansas. Thank you for listening to episode 14. I know this week's episode was a little bit shorter than usual, but we'll be back next week with a brand new regular length episode. Hit that subscribe button so you have access to all the newest episodes right when they come out. You can listen to the Forensic Files on the website at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which is linked in the episode notes. You can also listen anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Instagram at the Forensic Files Pod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. Please leave me a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, so more amazing people like you can find it. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episode was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young. Thank you.